out over Pete and a hand up as we pray for him and for our own hearts as he speaks to us. Father, you are so good, and we just want to say that again, and we can never tire of saying it as your goodness toward us continues um, to be revealed to us in the person and the work of Christ. Um, Father, thank you for your servant, Pete. Thank you for this dear brother in Christ, and what a, 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 what a glorious, really, honor it is uh, to be um, back home together in this homecoming week. Um, Lord, thank you for bringing him here. We pray that you would give him, um, as he speaks to us, uh, understanding and um, unction and utterance as he declares your word, as he uh, gives witness to the testimony of your goodness and of your love. And Lord, would you open wide our hearts. May our hearts be good soil to receive your living word and that it would take root and it would produce fruit that lasts for your glory. God, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, Justin. A uh, couple quick notes. I know this doesn't look like an Iron Man body, but I'll get there. I'll get there. Uh, in coming and preparing to speak to all of you, just want you to know I'm incredibly nervous. Yes, I'm on staff at Eagle Brook Church, and we see lots of people on a weekend, but I still have butterflies. Uh, the first time I experienced these butterflies was the day after I watched Pitch Perfect for the very first time. Yeah. I was leading worship at church the next morning, and it happened to be Easter Sunday. And all I was thinking in my head was, don't throw up, don't throw up, don't throw up. So I'm hopefully, you know, careful. But I haven't eaten anything yet this morning, so we're good. Uh, so as Justin and I were talking about what Tuesdays at chapel look like, he said, well, we kind of follow this theme of testimonies that encourage and he's like, you know, it's homecoming week and you're alumni, so you should really think about stories that would encourage our current student body from when you were a student. So I started to think, and I was like, okay, well, I could tell about the time when the cops got called on a game of capture the flag <laughs> and ended up handcuffing members of the student body out in front of Moyer. <laughs> I was like, no, I probably shouldn't share that. And I said, well, I could also share about the group of guys that I knew who snuck on to the roof of this building and spent a night sleeping. But I was like, no, I don't think I'd ever be invited back if I shared that story. So I thought I would share kind of my call to ministry that happened while I was here at Northwestern. Uh, a period of my life that really shaped who I am and how I, how I view what I do. And so to, to get to that story, there's, there's a couple of things you need to know about what led me to Northwestern. Uh, first and foremost, uh, I grew up wanting to be an architect. I wanted to design buildings. Uh, I wanted to build houses and office buildings and structures. And uh, I was the kid, instead of like drawing pictures of flowers or whatever we drew pictures of, I would draw floor plans as like a five-year-old. I was a little bit of a weird kid. But that's what, I, that's what I did. That's what I wanted to be when I grew up. And so my whole life, I was focused on becoming an architect until I went on a mission trip uh, before my senior year of high school. And it was in that, on that mission trip where I was playing with this little Hispanic girl. Her name was Juliesa, and she had like latched onto me that whole week that we were down at Ensenada. And on the last day, uh, I was giving her a piggyback ride. And someone had, like, drawn in chalk 
the gospel illustration of how God is on this side, we're separated from God here, Jesus is the cross in between. And in what limited Spanish I knew, I started asking her questions about this. And she, in her broken English, told me, yes, that Jesus was the leader of her life and all that business. And it was a great moment, and then my leader said, it's time to go. So I took her off my shoulders and I set her down. And I remember in those moments, looking in her eyes, that God said, this is what I want you to do the rest of your life. So I said, okay. So I came back from that mission trip. Um, I dropped my high school physics and calculus class, and I picked up dance techniques and team and life sports. Uh, so I have a pretty mean uh, salsa that maybe you'll get a chance to see later. <laughs> but that, kind of, that, that experience in Mexico altered the course of my life. And it brought me here to Northwestern, uh, where I played football. And during that first week of two-a-day practices, I was approached by a senior. Uh, his name was Tony Rojas. And as a freshman, you kind of get intimidated by the seniors on the football team because they're big, they're boisterous, and they, like, they can see your weaknesses right away. Uh, that's just how they are. And Tony kind of came alongside, took me under his wing, and he said, what are you doing next summer? And this is like in August. I'm like, I don't know. It's next summer. I'll probably go back home. And he said, you're not going to go home. You're going to work at camp. And again, when a senior tells a freshman they're going to do something, you can't say no. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll go work at camp. Uh, okay. So I did. And that summer at camp changed my life. That summer at camp showed me who God is and how much he values all of us. And he showed me through an experience that I had as a counselor. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible camp, basically there's a counselor of a cabin and they're in charge of 10 kids and their one job is to make sure that those kids don't die. Uh, <laughs> And maybe teach them, about, teach them about Jesus, maybe make sure they change their swimsuits, but most of the time, if the kids were alive at the end of the week and they went home with the right set of parents, it was a win. Uh, and so it was one of these weeks where I was in charge of 10 fourth grade boys. And these fourth grade boys were terrible. <laughs> Absolutely horrible. Uh, one-on-one, -on -one, they were fine. Like I could kind of control them and hang out with them and have fun. But then when they got together, it was not fun, not at all. Uh, and you're like, well, but Pete, you're a counselor, you're supposed to have fun, yeah, all this stuff. No, no. These kids, I just wanted to be done with them. Uh, they were the group of kids that when they would go to an event as a cabin or when they would go to a different place on camp property together, they would cause trouble. And I had other staff come to me and be like, oh, you know, hey, what, what cabin are you counseling this week? And I was like, well, I'm in Egypt, and they go, oh, I'm sorry, that's where you're counseling. Uh, they had developed that reputation. But before they developed that reputation, I kind of wanted to be that cool counselor. And so on Sunday night when they arrived, I said, hey, this week, let's all save up the candy that we buy from the canteen, and on the last night of camp, we'll have a candy party. Because you know, I wanted to be that cool, fun counselor. And a part of me didn't really believe that this group of fourth grade boys was going to be able to have the self-control to buy candy and to save candy. Uh, I just didn't think they had it in them. But I was wrong. 
And so over the course of the week, after every canteen time that we had, they would all come back with like handfuls of candy. And pretty soon the drawer that I had set aside wasn't big enough, and so we started using our trash can because there was just so much candy that they kept bringing back to our cabin. And I knew I was kind of in for it uh, as that started to happen. But throughout the course of the week, uh, trying to get to know these kids, trying to like, teach them about Jesus and all this stuff, it just wasn't going to happen. Uh, they were naughty. They were disobedient. Uh, they were just trying to find every single way to break the rules that they could. And so by the last night of camp, I was done. Absolutely done. Like, you guys, you, I was like, I don't care what happens. I'm going to get my sleep. You can go burn the place down. I don't care. Uh, and so I remember I laid down on my bunk. It was the last night of camp. We just came back from the campfire. And I said, okay, guys, you have two rules. I said, one, if you need to go to the bathroom, tell me, because the bathrooms were outside of the cabin. And I said, if someone else in the cabin in our group wants to fall asleep, let them fall asleep. Like, don't bother them. Just let them go to sleep. And so then I took the trash can of candy out, dumped it on the floor, and they were like piranhas to raw meat. Uh, and they were, it was actually the most obedient they had been all week. Uh, and so they were there having their candy, all that stuff. It was about 12.30, and I started to drift off to sleep because I was pretty tired. And this kid, his name is Danny, and he comes up to me and he goes, Pete, I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> A little dramatic. I said, all right, go to the bathroom, Danny. I'll wait. I'll stay awake until, until you come back. And so Danny goes to the bathroom, and about 15 minutes go by, and Danny doesn't come back. And I'm like, maybe I missed him, so I'm counting. And I'm like, oh, I only got nine. All right, Danny's not here. So I asked, I was like, hey, guys, has Danny come back? They said, no, he hasn't. So I said, okay, I'm going to go to the bathroom. Maybe he's really working on something or needs some encouragement or <laughs> ran out of toilet paper. I don't know. But when there's a fourth grade boy in the bathroom for more than 10 minutes, you kind of get worried. <laughs> so I go to the shower house. Uh, it's just around the corner from where our cabin was. And I walk into the men's side, or the one side of the shower house, and I look in the stalls, look in the showers, and he's not there. I was like, oh, well, maybe he went to the other side, because it was like a two-sided shower house. I was like, okay, well, I'll just go check the other side. So I went, checked that bathroom, and he wasn't there. I was like, okay, maybe I missed him. Maybe, maybe he walked back, maybe he took a different route, maybe we just passed each other and didn't see it. Like, maybe he's back in the cabin. So I walked back to the cabin, and I asked, has Danny come back? And I said, no. No, he hasn't. So I go, okay, guys, get in your bunks. I need to count you. And so they get in their bunks, and I get to nine. And I should have ten. And so it's obvious at this point that Danny's not in the cabin, and it's up to me to find him. And it's about 12.45. And so I, I grab my flashlight and I tell my junior counselor, I say, stay in the cabin, keep the guys in here. I'm going to go look for Danny. If Danny comes back, ring the bell once, because that was how we would determine whether or not we found him. And so I grab my flashlight, I head out of my cabin, and I go to the nearest bathroom beyond the shower house. Because like maybe, maybe he went like further away to go to the bathroom. I don't know. So I check the next bathroom, and it wasn't, he wasn't there. And so I go to our main hall because I was like, maybe he had like this really intense God moment and wanted to go spend time in chapel with his 
fourth grade boys can surprise you like that. But I went into chapel, and he wasn't there. And I start to get anxious. I start to worry because I'm realizing I don't know where this fourth grade boy is. And like my most important job this week is to make sure he doesn't die and goes home with mom and dad tomorrow. And I'm realizing this, and I turn around, and I look up in the sound booth, and I see some of our staff who were putting together the end of the week slideshow. And I ask them, I say, hey guys, have you seen a camper wandering around here anywhere? I go, no. Why? Well, one of mine went to the bathroom about 15 minutes ago, and he hasn't come back. I don't know what to do. And so they kind of start this search process. So the first thing that we did was we went into every cabin, woke up every counselor, had them do a head count. Everybody had their kids. So he wasn't in any of the other cabins. Second thing we started to do was wake up all of the other non-counseling staff to start searching buildings, to start searching the driveway, to start searching our trails, to kind of look anywhere that this kid could be. We did that for about another 20 minutes, and we didn't find him. And so then the next step was to wake up all of our high school and middle school staff that weren't in cabins and literally stand them shoulder to shoulder and walk camp property while we called in our executive director. And so they did a shoulder to shoulder search of camp property. And Danny wasn't there. Our executive director came in and he asked me, have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done this? Have you looked all these places? And we said, yeah, we've done all of that. He said, do it again. We checked every cabin again. We, we did a shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder search property at camp. We sent people out to, to the, like the out camps, and we sent them out to the road and, and out on the docks, uh, and we couldn't find them. Danny was nowhere to be found. And so our director made the call that we need to call the sheriff because it's obvious Danny's not here, and we need county support. And so we call in the, the sheriff's office and two deputies come screaming down our driveway. And they ask, have you checked the cabins? Have you checked the bathrooms? Have you checked the buildings? Have you checked the property? And we said, yeah, we've done it all. And they said, do it again. And so for a third time, those high school and junior high staff are, are doing a shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder search of property. And we can't find them. We sent our lifeguards diving off the deep end of the docks because we were afraid that maybe Danny slept, walked off the end of a dock and fell into the lake. We sent people down the roads because maybe he got fed up, didn't want to wait till tomorrow and just started walking home. Because again, sometimes fourth grade boys will do that. And we couldn't find him. And finally, the deputy said, he's not on your property. We need to call the canine unit and we need to call the helicopter because it's 2.30 in the morning and we can't find this camper. And so to do that, they had to call the sheriff and they had to get permission. And so they wake the sheriff up at 2.30 in the morning, they tell them the story, and the sheriff says, yeah, I will, yeah, you can do that. But before you do that, you have to go in and toss every cabin, like rip every single building apart. Anywhere a kid could be, you look. 
And so it was about this time, it was around 3 o'clock in the morning when all of this was happening. I'm walking up this hill with a flashlight, yelling his name at the top of my lungs because I had lost this kid. And I would do whatever it took to find him. And I remember midway up this hill, I hear the bell ring. And I yell at the top of my lungs, praise God, and I run up the hill, and I run back down, and as I'm running down, I see the silhouette of my director holding Danny in his arms, walking him up to the office. And at this point, the emotion starts to come out of me. And I'm trying to contain it because we had actually called his parents at 2.30 in the morning and said, we lost your kid, you need to come to camp. And so we were going to go call his parents and say, you know, we found him, it's okay. You can either, you can continue coming or you can go back home and come back tomorrow. And so we talk with mom and dad for a little bit and my director releases Danny back to me and I carry him back to the cabin, set him down and he goes and falls asleep like nothing happened. And I go and I lay on my bunk and I just get so overwhelmed with the fact that we just found Danny, that we spent three hours, we called the sheriff, we woke up all of our staff, and we found him. We found him. And I remember that joy was just bubbling up out of me, and I was starting to cry, because I was so excited that we found him, and so relieved, and so happy. And then I realized, if I wake up a group of fourth grade boys at three o'clock in the morning because I'm crying, that might not bode well for me tomorrow. So I walked outside of the cabin, I sat down on the steps, and again, I'm ju just losing it. Ugly crying, like the whole nine yards. And it's in that moment that my boss comes over, and actually Tony comes over, the one who got me to work at camp, and they ask me, you know, how are you doing? And through the tears, I'm trying to say, oh, okay, I just need to call down somebody. Uh, okay, I'm just so happy that we found him. And they proceed to tell me where they found Danny. You see, on the way back from the bathroom, Danny decided to like fall back asleep while he was walking. And he walked right past my cabin and into the cabin next to mine which was the cabin that he stayed in the year before, so he was familiar with it. And when he opened the door to, his, to that other cabin, he went to his bunk, which was the bunk straight back from the door, and it was the lower bunk. So he went in and laid down in that bunk. But there was another kid sleeping in that bunk. And so what does any fourth grade boy do when there's someone sleeping in their bed? Well, they push them off. And so Danny pushed this other camper off the bunk, and when this other camper hit the floor, he didn't wake up. He rolled under the bunk. And so when we did head counts for that, when we went into that counselor's cabin and did a head count, he just took his flashlight and counted 10 bodies that were sleeping in bunks. He had no clue that there was an 11th underneath the bunk across from his. But we found him. But the other thing that my boss had told me that day 
But she said, Pete, while we were looking for Danny, God brought to mind Luke 15. And she said, Pete, when you get back into your cabin, I want you to read Luke 15. And at that point, I was like, okay, sure, I'll read Luke 15, whatever. I, I wasn't making any connections. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. And so I op- go back in my cabin, and I open up to Luke 15. And Jesus tells three parables. And the first parable is about a lost sheep. And he says, pretend you're a shepherd, and you have a hundred sheep in the wilderness. And one of them goes missing. Won't you leave the 99 and go search for the one that is lost? And when you find it, you'll put that sheep on your shoulders. And you'll come home rejoicing. You'll invite your friends and say, hey, rejoice with me for the sheep that was lost is now found. And Jesus concludes the parable by saying, in the same way, your Father in heaven rejoices over one sinner who needs repentance than over 99 who don't. Jesus continues in, in Luke 15 and he says, pretend there's this woman who has 10 silver coins and loses one. She's going to light a lamp and sweep a dirt floor until she finds it. And when she finds it, she'll call her friends and neighbors together and say, Rejoice with me, for I found my lost coin. And Jesus takes it even one step further where he shares a story about a prodigal son. Where he paints this picture of a dad and two sons, and the youngest comes to the dad and says, Dad, I want you dead. Give me my money. And dad does. And the son goes, wastes it. And while the son is wasting the money, he comes to the end. And he goes, I've got nothing. How much more does my father have? So he concocts this plan of saying, you know, dad, I'm not worthy even to be called your son. Let me work for you as a slave. And and just let me like have the food that you feed your, your servants. So the son has this idea and he runs back to the father And there's a part of the, uh, it's just one line. And Jesus says, while the son was still a ways off, the father saw him and ran to him and embraced him and said, this is my son who is lost and is now found, who is dead and now alive again. You see, the parable of the lost sheep teaches us that the lost are worth looking for. One sheep out of 100, 99%, that's an A+. That's good, right? The lost are worth looking for. The lost coin says that the lost have value. Doesn't matter what you've done, you have value. And the lost, the prodigal son, tells us that the past doesn't matter. The baggage you bring in, God says, I don't care about that. I just want you. And it all goes back to God's heart for us who are lost. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve take the bite of fruit, they hear God walking in the garden, and they feel so much shame for what they've done that they go and hide. And God's question that he says It's not, what have you done? Did you disobey me? 
the first thing that God says is, where are you? Adam, Eve, where are you? I want to be with you. Where are you? And that's the question that God asks us even now today. Where are you? Some of you here in this room are here at Northwestern because your parents want you to come. You're here because you were forced. You're here because they accepted you. You're here for whatever reason, but you've never put your faith in Jesus. Believe it or not, there are non-Christians who come to Christian colleges. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're Danny in the story that I shared. Lost, and you don't know that there is this huge search party looking for you. It is never too late to turn to Jesus. It is never too late to put your full faith and trust in him. And if that's you, I would highly encourage you to do that. Talk to your RA, talk to Justin, talk to your professors, because it's one of the best decisions you could make. Maybe you're like me, who in the story, you've grown up in church your whole life, and the message that God loves you is one you've heard since you were little. But maybe today you just need to be reminded that God will move heaven and earth to find you. Or maybe where you are in this story is you're the camp staff. Maybe you're being called into something more. Maybe you're being called to step up and to step out in your faith and be a part of God's search party. Maybe you're the one that God is going to use to raise up the next church leader. Maybe you're the one that God is going to use to be the next church leader. Each of us has a role that we play in God's party, in that search party. And the question is, are you going to join that search party? Or are you going to let it pass you by? You know, what we experience here in chapel, this isn't church. The hope of the world is found in the local church. It's found in your local church. I would encourage you to join what's happening in your community. If you're plugged in in a church, awesome. Ask how you can be more plugged in. But if you're not plugged into a local church, I would love to talk with you. I would love to connect you to a church that is hungry to search for the lost. I'll be in the billy all day today, and I'd love to talk with you if that's something you want to do. With that, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite the worship team up to sing one last song with you all tonight. God, thank you so much for this student body. Thank you for the gifts and passion uh, and excitement that you put in them. God, would you raise up in this group people who want to be used by you? Would you give them the courage to step out in faith? and to become part of your search party. God, we pray all this in your name. Amen.